Amen. How you doing, family? You doing good? Let's pray, hey, as we start. Um, last week, some people got, or last time we did our relationship series, uh, we talked about singleness. And uh, I proposed to you the thought why you should consider singleness a lifestyle choice. Uh, if you're already married, that doesn't apply to you. You're, 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 you're in covenant now, so you can't consider that choice. Um, but others uh, should and did. And uh, some people got really mad and upset about that. And uh, I'm glad, I'm glad, because I want you thinking and uh, I want you to think. So why don't we pray? Hey, Let's ask God's Spirit to come, talk to us in His Word and to shape our lives productively. Our Father, thank you that we can uh, be here in freedom to worship you. Many of us know the joy of what it is to walk with you, Jesus, and we're grateful for your sacrifice. We're grateful for the freedom that we can know in Jesus. And we pray tonight that you would come and do us good, that you would come and minister to our lives. Open our eyes. Lord, there are people in this room who desperately need this teaching because they need to avoid future landmines. There are other people in this room, Lord, and this teaching is going to exacerbate wounds and hurts and, and difficulties from the past. And so we pray for your comfort and your love and your grace to be with us tonight, that you would come and leave us all healthier, more whole and better when we walk out than when we came in. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen, amen and amen. Good to see you. Go ahead and grab a seat. Give the person next to you like a fist bump or a high five or a, maybe a holy kiss or something, but keep it holy, keep it holy. Uh, this is part two of our relationship series. This one is called What We Need to Know About Dating. What We Need to Know About Dating. Now, you could be here and you don't have any plans to date because maybe you're one of those people who has made singleness a lifestyle choice. Maybe you're currently married or maybe you're currently ensconced in another type of relationship. So dating's not going to be big uh, on your agenda, perhaps. So if this could still apply to you because uh, you might be single again one day, you never know. And uh, the other thing, I hope you, hopefully you're not though, um, but the other thing is that you might be able to help someone else. And so this series really is aimed at, if you're in the sort of decision-making phase of any of these seasons, this is aimed at helping you be armed with some information from God's Word and some wise counsel from your old friend, Uncle Ben, to help you avoid a lot of pain. And I've been talking to people for 15 years, and I have seen, sat with a lot of people in their pain. And I'm keen, if you're here, uh, the, my motivation in this teaching series and the preparation and even the way I'm going to yell at you about mean things is to help you avoid pain. I really want that for you. Um, we, we love people more than we love our programs in our church. And so what we do is aimed at helping you, growing your life, healing you, pre-warning you sometimes. And uh, so that's what we're going to do. So that's the first thing is it might help you. But if you're not in that decision-making bracket, then uh, you don't. this is not a good time just to play Sudoku or Snake on your Nokia. Uh, this is a good time for you to imagine, you know, someone might come to me for advice, someone might come to me for help, and I should try to help them. Is that okay? So whether you're single, whether you're dating, whether you lead other people, or whether people come to you advice, this stuff is for you. Now, we have a problem as Christians when we talk about the idea of dating. You probably think we have many problems, right? Who's had a problematic date before? Who's sitting next to the person they had that date with that was problematic? No one's admitting it. We're going to move on. Here's the problem. The Bible comes to us from a culture in which it was customary to arrange marriages. And so it doesn't say a lot about dating. Because in Bible times, dating wasn't a thing. Now, no doubt we have people in this room that come from cultural groups where it's still prevalent in, in planet Earth today for marriages to be arranged and at the very flexible end of that, at least heavily sanctioned by family members, okay? 
It's fascinating because those type of marriages actually have a far greater success rate for longevity. Uh, there's a couple of windows at which people are likely to divorce in Western culture and people from marriages, from cultures where marriages are arranged, they have far less divorce rate. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? I've got to tell you, I tell my daughters that all the time. <laughs> and they've grown up in a house knowing that daddy gets the final say. And if daddy doesn't get the final say, the boyfriend goes in daddy's ute tray and uh, we go for just a little drive out to the bush, but daddy comes back. And I tell my daughters, honey, if you love him, let him go. Let him go. If he returns to you, he's yours. If he doesn't, it was never meant to be. <laughs> okay, I'm going to move on. I'm going to move on. So listen, when we talk about dating from a Christian perspective, we have to extrapolate some ideas, okay? There's no chapter and verse to tell you whether you should date, how many dates you should go on, who you should date, all that type of thing. Um, and it's actually funny about the Bible anyway, is the Bible presupposes a couple of things about you that you might not be used to being told. The Bible is not a book of rules and regulations, nor is it a book of motivational uh, pithy statements. The Bible presupposes that you walk with the God who can be known and wants to know you, that you are in a relationship with the God who can be known and wants to know you, and that uh, the scriptures are his sacred word to you to grow your life. So everything God encourages you to do in scripture is because it's good for you. And everything that God says in scripture is because he wants you to stay on the path of life and he does desperately not want you to veer off to the path of death. And we're not just talking about eternity, although that's in there. We're talking about even in this life, Scripture encourages us on choices that are wise and promote the flourishing of our lives or choices that will rob or kill or destroy goodness from our lives. So we're actually most of the time when we're dealing with Scripture called to extrapolate how does this ancient text apply to my life today. And uh, that helps you stop reading it as just a book of rules and regulations. So there's two things I think that Scripture would say to us as we open uh, when we come when it comes to dating. Okay, here's the first one: guard your heart and know where you're going in life. Guard your heart and know where you're going in life. Listen to what Proverbs chapter four, verse twenty three to twenty seven says, and I think this is incredibly applicable to people who are single and who are weighing up the future, be it relationship status or otherwise. Listen to this: above all else. Some translations say, with all diligence. Others say, of primary importance. Listen, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Your heart in the Hebrew is just your mind and your will and your emotions. It's the seat of your choices, your volition. It's the seat of your thoughts and your thinking. It's the seat of your feelings, the feelings that you cultivate, the feelings that you tolerate. That inner and invisible part of you, the seat of your personality, Guard that bit. Put a guard on it. Like imagine you're a shopkeeper or a greenkeeper or a beekeeper. And what do these people do? They look after their little patches of turf. A shopkeeper looks after their shop. And Proverbs says, you've got a heart and you should guard that part of you. But listen to what it says. What do you do? Well, you keep your mouth free of perversity. Turn to the person next to you and say, ooh, we'll have to look up perversity later because I've no idea what that means. <laughs> keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk from your lips. Listen to this. Let your eyes... Look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths of your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. How many people have a spare foot? Keep both foots from evil, okay? Keep two feet from evil. Um, you know, it's an interesting thing, isn't it, to sketch in your mind this 
perspective of life from this ancient wisdom that says guard your heart you've got a you've got thoughts you've got feelings you've got a mind and you've got to put a guard on it like a shopkeeper just be careful what gets into you be careful what gets into your head have you um sort of seen the book there's a book going around at the moment that's called get out of your head i don't know if you've seen it. it's like some female motivational speaker have you seen it and anyway, my sister, she's posting about it on social media all the time. Get out of your head. And she's talking about all the messes that go on in your head that she should get out of. And Proverbs says, um, just be careful what you let get into your head. Be careful what you let get into your heart. And when it comes to dating and relationships, one of the first gateways of stewardship for us is to be very careful that we should guard our heart and be careful what gets in there. But how would I do that? Well, it gives us the answer in the following verses when it says to us, fix your eyes straight ahead. You know, in other words, live a life of focus. Set your eyes on where you're going and don't depart from that. Now, if you were here when we talked about singleness, uh, you may or may not remember, you, you might have fallen asleep during the message, plenty do. Um, you, um, you may remember we talked about the idea that really, um, in all of the studies on marriage, a person is as happy after marriage as they were before they were married. In all of the studies, there are no studies, and they've done it all over the world in different groups and different cultures, and this is what they found. Marriage does not make you happier. How many married people like, would just give a pinky wave of testimony? Like, I kind of feel like I might understand what that means. <laughs> Some people are given two hands of praise. Um, it's not that we're down on marriage, by the way. We're going to do a whole week on marriage, but you have to understand that you have to consider singleness, then you have to consider dating before you can consider what the heck do you do to make a marriage work, okay? And there's a sequence of events. So even if I jokingly talk negative or seriously talk negatively about marriage, when we get to marriage, you'll understand the stuff. So just stay with us, okay? Don't leave the church like the person who yelled at Danielle that said we demonized marriage. Okay. Have a focus to your life. Set your gaze straight ahead. Know where you're going. You know, if you're a single person, or if you're single again, I still think this equally applies, now is the time for you to work out who am I? What am I doing with my life? Why did God put me on planet Earth? This is a great time to work it out because this helps you. If you can answer these questions about you while you're flying solo, which is not a problem. It's not a problem for you to fly solo. In the week on singleness, we talked about the fact that our culture has made a myth. And the myth is that the essence of humanity is, expected, is expressed in romantic love or unbridled sexual expression. Both lies that are only new have only been around for 100 years, maybe only 50 years. They have not been around long. Most cultures did not say that is how humans flourish. And of course, people live long lives thinking that's how they're going to flourish. And then they discover that that doesn't help you flourish at all. Well, what would I do? Well, while I'm single, the thing I should do is I should guard my heart and I should fix my gaze on where I'm going and not depart from the right or from the left. Now, of course, this is super handy if you could take this idea to heart, because, of course, what it means is that whenever life presents you with opportunities to someone who's not going where you're going, you know they're not going where you're going, but you're still going where you're going, so you're just not going with them. Now, I am an old person. And all you young adults that are in the room, I am 43 years old. Can you imagine being that ancient? You probably can't. Um, your parents might even be older than me. Um, and I'll tell you now, the amount of times I've seen somebody live 10 years later to regret that they veered off course because of someone. They veered off course because of infatuation. They veered off course because of temptation. They veered off course because of the pressure from this culture. You're not anybody until you have somebody. 
and they veered off course. And what, of course, that happened is that they were going somewhere, but they turned to the right or they turned to the left. And really, you do live to regret that later on. I had a conversation last week with a lady who is just about to turn 70, more power to her. And she, when she was 17, had someone come into her life that she knew wasn't right for her. She said everything in her heart and mind told her it's not right. But she'd grown up in a violent home in a domestically abusive setting. And she saw this opportunity for this relationship as her escape from the violent house. Well, little did she know this charmer married her, bought her a car, bought her a house. And then it started the beatings and the violence. And, and it's like the house she ran from became the house that she went to. And she said, you know, and she's now 70 and she's got terrible disabilities brought by the violence and the grief that she suffered. And, and she said, you know, I knew the whole time I should have never gone off track that way. But it was like I just wasn't listening to myself when somebody said that to me. It's horrible. Hey, I'm not judging her. I sat with her and I thought, man, that's a tragic story to be 70. And she said, if you could ever talk to anyone, and I've got daughters, so actually what she was saying is you should talk to your daughters. <laughs> you should talk to your daughters and tell them, don't let someone take your life off track. And she looked at me with tears in her eyes. I had tears in my eyes. And she said, the thing is now, I see it, but it's too late for me. Hey, make a quality decision if you're listening to me. Don't sit in someone's office when you're 70 and say, I wish I had listened to Pastor Ben when I was 17, when I was 20. We want to save you pain. Guard your heart. That's the first one. Guard your heart, know where you're going. Here's the second one. Don't awaken love before the right time. Don't awaken love before the right time. Don't get involved before the time is right. Actually, this is such an important statement that the book Song of Solomon, have you ever read the book Song of Solomon? It's the erotic sealed section of the Bible, actually. It's incredible what the Bible has gotten away with by putting it in there. I do think it should have a sealed section. Yeah, my kids are old teenagers now, but when they were young, it's like, that's the one bit we ain't reading, you know. We're not talking about pomegranates at the dinner table, kids. Um, it's incredible. The graphic, and I'm going to say this word so you have to understand, if you don't like what I'm about to say, go back and study the scriptures and you'll have to be forced to supply me with a better image. The Song of Solomon contains very graphic, erotic poetry. It does. And the church has never known how to adequately deal with Song of Solomon because, well, it's the Bible, but it contains graphic erotic poetry. It's so weird. don't know if there's any kids in the room, so I'm not going to go where my head wants me to go with explaining that any further. And so, therefore, we're going to move on. Now, listen. So, the Song of Solomon, it contains amazing things, but what it shows you is that God is not a prude and God is not anti-love. God's not even anti-fun. God's definitely not anti-sex. He invented it. There's, you know, there's all sorts of animals reproduce all other ways, but God gave us a very powerful way to do it, but one that is dynamic and dynamite. And how many people know if you use dynamite the wrong way, you can lose a thumb or worse? And in Song of Solomon, three times, the same statement is made. It's in chapter 2, verse 7. It's in chapter 3, verse 5. And it's in chapter 8, verse 4. And the lady, who is one of the main features of the book, she says this many times. Listen to what it says in 3, verse 5 of Song of Solomon. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Isn't that just beautiful poetry? Okay, you're not with me. That's all right. We'll move on. When I hear that word gazelles, I think about the way I spring across the fields when I'm in my athletic PK, Danielle. She often says I'm like a gazelle. <laughs> um, I don't tell her she's like a doe, though. Uh, 
It says this, listen, by the, gaz by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. That is word for word repeated three times in the book Song of Solomon. So here's the book that has like just, whew, it's getting hot in here type of imagery in it. And it's amazing that imagery. Check it out sometime, but, you know, do it supervised. And, um, but three times within this celebration of love, this celebration, it's a beautiful poem, a lengthy one that celebrates the pursuit of this beautiful young maiden by her man, by her lover, by the shepherd. And it's wonderful. And she, she sort of gets off track because in the story, she sneaks out of the house at night and she runs into the wrong company and the wrong company assault her. This is like a real life type of setting, but written in a poetic way. And what she turns around and she says ultimately is, hey, listen, don't awaken love before it desires. And the whole thrust and the whole theme of the book is that wait for the right setting, because if you get involved in the wrong setting, there's pain ahead for you. And what it looked like for her is she's out exploring the city streets at night when she should have been tucked up safely in her room and she runs into a bunch of blokes that decide to defile her. And her learning outcome, at least one of the learning outcomes, is don't be getting up to stuff before, you, before the right time. The other thing Song of Solomon does, which I just think is fascinating and breathtaking because I've done so much marriage counselling and pre-marriage counselling, and that's just to keep us together, let alone all the other people that we help. <laughs> oh, Daniel's looking at me now. Better move on. Um, and it presents in Song of Solomon that you, your life, is like a vineyard. Your life is like a vineyard. And especially your love life. Your love life is like a vineyard. You have capability for love. You have capability for affection. You have capability for emotional, psychological, and intellectual love. You have capability for physical intimacy and expression of sexuality. You have capability for that. You're born with it. You're so born with it that there will be chemicals in your brain at certain times of your life that will be released so that you might even feel like doing that stuff. You are wired for it. So listen, some of us are going to be struggling with desire, struggling with appetite and temptation and all sorts of stuff. It doesn't make you bad it makes you human and the thing is that when you know that you're human what you have to do is manage and cater to your humanity you do that if you own pets right we don't own pets we already have three furry little animals called children to look after so but if you have pets you manage your pets lack of humanity right you don't yell at your pet, wipe your, wipe your feet before you walk in the door and make sure you poo outside. You don't do that, right? What do you do? You wait for the dog to scratch and then you take the dog outside so it poos outside. And if you never open the door and never take the dog outside, the dog poos on the floor. And then who do you blame? Well, of course you blame the dog. But you shouldn't blame the dog. You should blame you because you didn't cater for your dog's lack of humanity. Isn't that true? And so what you and I have to do, and I'm not calling you a dog, by the way, uh, what you and I have to do is we've got to manage our humanity and cater for it, knowing that we have desires to connect with people, that we have physical desires and intellectual and emotional desires, and just the presence of those desires doesn't mean we should do whatever those desires want to do. Being ruled by our emotions and our desires is the shortcut to a pathway fraught with peril. Who knows what I'm talking about? If you just live your life doing whatever you feel, you will make a dog's breakfast of life. A life lived by principle is a safer life. Every parent tries to teach this to their children because history has shown us that it's true. And so Song of Solomon says that your life and especially your love life is like a vineyard. And around the vineyard are fences and should be fences. And why there needs to be fences around the vineyard is because we've got to let stuff grow in the vineyard. We've got to let it grow. And the stuff that's growing in the vineyard shouldn't be plucked before it's ready and ripe for harvest. 
Because what happens to a vineyard? Well, you plant seed, you tend soil, you protect it, you nurture it. And I mean, this is a beautiful picture of what a human life is, that a human life is precious to God. You're a human, you are precious to God. Think about that. He doesn't just tolerate your existence, but he celebrates it. Scriptures tell us that God made you for his glory, that the watching cosmos would look at you and go, look at her, look at him. Man, God is awesome. Who could create someone who is only four foot tall but has red hair that makes up for the other 10 metres? Hey, Judy Kunz, five foot, she's telling me that she's five foot tall. In the spirit, she's 28 foot tall. It's like a spiritual Goliath but good instead of the baddie. Um, see, we're, you are made for God to delight in you. That's why God's so creative. You look around the room, we've got different types of hair, different amounts of hair, hair in different places, we have different heights, we have different capabilities. Some of us are physically strong, some of us are mentally and intellectually genius, others of us are just normal like me. And, you know, they, we're, we're so diverse and we are made to bring glory to God. You are precious to God. And when God looks at you, he sees a vineyard that he has been keeping alive your whole life. You've survived. And God in his providential goodness and wisdom has provided water and oxygen and nutrients and all this sort of stuff. Think about this, because at your conception, you had six million other competitors. And you're the fastest swimmer, my friend. Give the person next to you a victorious high five right now. You made it. I mean, just think about that. You could be sitting here with different colour eyes, different, you could be have a different, you could be Kevin instead of Charlene or something right now, but God made you. God has tended you. You're a vineyard and you are precious in God's sight. Now, everything God says to us in Scripture presupposes the words of a loving creator, a loving father that sees you not as an object of wrath, but sees you as something precious to be tended, to be looked after. And Song of Solomon really picks up on this and it says, your love is a vineyard. The whole thing's about love and so it's specifically about love, but it's about you and your love life. And it says, you know, our love is a vineyard. Don't let the little foxes come in and spoil the vine. It's an amazing picture. It's an amazing picture because this is what can happen to us. And if you've had friends and you know you've sat and talked about their dating woes and their heartbreak or their marriage breakdowns or the divorce and the pain of it all, that's all possibly involved in there. How many times have you seen a little fox get into a vineyard and spoil the vineyard? It didn't seem like a big deal at the time. It's a little fox. It's not a big fox. It's not like a werewolf. It's just a little fox. You could even ignore it. What harm could it do if it gets through the fence? What harm could it do if it gets in there? There's, it, that vineyard's a big place. Surely this fox is not going to do damage. But your Father in heaven who loves you and sees you as a precious, precious object says the best way for a person to see themselves is a sacred vineyard that requires sacred tending so that those little foxes don't get in and spoil it. And particularly this image comes to us in the context of love. And it's not saying don't love. It's saying, just be really cautious about the way. Don't awaken it before it's the right time. There's a right time and there's a wrong time. Wait for the right time. Don't wait for the wrong time. Those little foxes will come in. They will spoil the vineyard. It's pretty amazing to think about, isn't it? In particular, in the, in the Song of Solomon, it says it, it holds up the, the idea that the premature harvesting of the vineyard is dangerous to the crop. And that's the context in which it says, be careful, guard our vineyards from the little foxes, those little foxes that will spoil the vine before our fruit is ripe. What an awesome picture. It's an awesome picture. Your life is ripening fruit 
And one day it'll be ready to make something beautiful. You know, the idea in Song of Solomon is that eventually fine wine will be made from this. Fine wine. You know, the difference between fine wine and like probably, you know, what they drink at school is weak Bacardi breezes. Like, like cheap, yucky, nasty, dangerous stuff that's bad for you. But then there's like fine wine, which could be bad for you. You'll have to ask the doctors in the room. But there's a qualitative difference between a nice fine wine. And in Song of Solomon, it says, for you, the best image to have in mind is that you and your love life are a vineyard that should be tended carefully and only ever settle for the fine wine, never the cheap stuff. In other words, then don't rush into this dating thing. Don't rush in ill-advised or without deep consideration. And especially in the church, listen to what Paul said to Timothy. Timothy was a young man and Timothy was a young single man in charge of a very large number of churches. It's believed that there could have been up to 100,000 Christian people in the vicinity of Ephesus in Asia Minor when Paul wrote this. And Timothy was in charge of all of those churches. Can you believe it? He had incredible responsibility. And Paul said to him, here's the deal, Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. Treat young men as brothers and treat old women as mothers. And treat young women as sisters with absolute purity. And I think this is something that we have to remember in the church, that whether you're young or old, if you, it, before, you know, it says um, treat, treat older men as fathers. If any of you come up to me and call me father, <laughs> I'm going to get Pastor Sam to kill you. <laughs> um, but think about that, because every, every man in this church is your brother. Every sister in this church is, every woman in this church is your sister. Is your sister. Think about that. And you have the same father. And that father deeply cares about you as a precious item to be tended. And that father deeply cares about her as a precious item to be tended. Imagine how relationships would change and grow if we treated each other as precious brothers and sisters that belong to another father. Now, next time you're on a date, ladies, and the boy gets a bit handsy, just remind him that he's your brother and you're his sister because it really kills the mood. <laughs> this is different. This, this way of viewing each other, that we view each other as sacred, that we view each other as precious, that we view each other as family, is the point of disembarkation where Christian dating takes a different direction to how the world conceives of as dating. In the world, dating is a pastime. Because our culture is bound by the myth of romantic love or unbridled sexual expression being the full essence of what it is to be human, then, of course, dating just simply becomes your on-ramp into unbridled expression of the essence of humanity. If I don't have romance, I'm not a full person. And you watch every idiotic rom-com that you see. I've got a 17-year-old daughter now who's just started to discover the rom-com genre. She's turning psychotic, guys. She's actually awesome, but um, we had a bunch of girls over the other night and I was listening to them all twitter and giggle while they kissed in the rom-coms and it's, oh, it's disgusting. But anyway, um, but the world from a very young age begins to uh, enculturate us that romantic love or unbridled sexual expression or both is the essence of what it means to be humanity and without that you could never be happy. And some of us have really believed that and we've just got to start saying, hang on, I actually think I'm believing the wrong thing here. Because I'm not believing something that will promote the flourishing of my life. If you do dating the world way, dating is a pastime. And since it's not possible to be happy without romantic love or sexual expression, then someone is better than no one. And if you haven't found Mr. Right, find Mr. Right now. If you haven't found Mrs. Right, just settle for Mrs. Right now. And, and the world just says, just, you know, just like, be happy, don't worry. Someone's got a number plate like that out there in the car park, actually. Who is that? Great number plate. 
no one's admitting it. <laughs> Our world has a major cultural problem called consumerism, and I'm sure that in a room full of this many intelligent people, you're aware of what consumerism is. Consumerism is a culture of consumption that says the meaning and essence of life is found in experience and therefore morality is based on anything that provides me with an experience that makes me feel good. And indeed, the happiness of my life will be determined by my continued ability to access experiences. And those experiences can be found in material things, in materialism, they can be found in relationships, can be found in hot air balloons, can be found on you know, Grand Canyon trips, can be found on watches and cars and suits and all sorts of stuff. And consumerism is dangerous because what happens is consumerism capitalizes on the fact that once I chase the mirage in the desert of happiness through experience, as soon as I've had that experience, I, I'm not happy anymore. I'm very lucky if while I'm having it, I'm happy. I'm very lucky. Most of the time, we're not. Most of the research says that chasing a thing to make you happy, even when you get it, you're not happy. And you don't even enjoy that happiness for a few minutes. Have you ever bought a new iPhone? You know what I'm saying, right? It's going to be this new gadget, this new gizmo, this new acquisition. It's going to be the secret to my life. I'm finally going to be at peace when I get that Gucci pair of loafers or something and and then what happens I get them and suddenly buyer's remorse sets in and I have the dawning and the disappointing realization that it doesn't in any way chance or form make me as happy as I thought it would and that's called buyer's remorse and because that that emptiness doesn't go away just because I feed it with consumerism and in the the, the, the centre of our modern Western culture being consumeristic has crept into the dating world and so now dating is consumerism. Consumerism is that dating is a pastime and a person exists, exists to make me happy and to furnish my needs, whether my needs are emotional, I want them to support me, whether my needs are sexual and I want them to meet those needs so I can have unbridled expression, whether I'm, my needs are for affirmation and so I need someone to be with me on my arm, whether my needs for admiration so I'm going to choose a trophy person to be with me on my arm so everybody goes wow how lucky is he which people do say that to me all the time how lucky am I but for good reasons this is consumerism where now people aren't precious things to be tended and looked after but they are objects that exist to meet my needs and this is born out of the fact that the world says romantic love and unbridled sexual expression is the essence of what it means to be human But people are not things to be used. They are persons to be known, persons to be connected with. Dating as consumerism says that a person is basically as good as an old shirt. And if I like it at the time, I'll have it. But eventually, it'll end up crumpled and thrown in the corner and I'll go get myself a new shirt. How many people have seen any writing or documentary making on this new uh, phenomenon we have in the Western world, well, all over the world, called fast fashion? fast fashion, that now a H&M store or a Supre store, you know, um, is just around the corner. Well, not here in Alice Springs, but elsewhere. It's just around the corner. And what I can do is I can find myself a pink top for $5.95, guys, and I can go and I can get that pink top and I can wear it. And as soon as it rips or as soon as it wears out, I just chuck it because I can go get another one for $5.95. And that's the essence of consumerism, cheap consumer experiences available to assuage my desires at such a low cost that when I feel emptiness and I want some more retail therapy, that's why they call it retail therapy, I just go and I replace it and things are replaceable now. Everything's replaceable. Ah, who cares? We banned a saying in our house. Here, here's what it is. Meh. You know that one? Meh. You know what meh means? Ah, who cares? It's replaceable. Yeah, I didn't like my happy meal. Meh. I'll get another one Wednesday. Won't make me any happier. Meh. Meh. Oh, I, I, was, I, I dated her for a while. Meh. Now I dated him. 
Ah, oh, I dated her for a while. Meh, now I dated her. And, and, and it's a terrible cultural trait that things are so disposable that now in our culture, people are disposable. You see it all through the TV shows that you watch that are just broadcasting value statements to you all the time. I love the TV show Suits, but I can never stop myself from psychoanalyzing all the people and why they just bounce from relationship to relationship to relationship. Like, and How problematic is Harvey Specter with his intimacy issues and his inability to connect and his in inability to commit for the long term? You know what I'm saying? Oh, I'd love a good hour with Harvey on my couch. <laughs> Girls in the church are lying out. Well, when you have that hour with him, then I'll date him afterwards when he's all fixed up and you'd probably love that too. Um, this is a culture of consumerism and we should be very wary that we are victims of it in the dating world or perpetrators of it in the dating world. It's called consumerism. That's a nice label, isn't it? The Bible calls it lust. Lust. It's one of the seven deadly sins. It's a deadly sin. Lust is the reduction of a person. See, most of us think lust is just, I want sex with someone. And it involves that, but that's actually only the surface. There's a deeper problem which turns it sexual. Here's what it is. Lust is the reduction of a person down to a thing you use. When I take a person and I reduce them down to something to be used, that's lust. Now they're like a hammer or a pencil or a skirt. They have a functional utilitarian purpose for now, but their existence is to benefit my felt needs now. And once they no longer benefit my felt needs, they will be put back in the toolbox or chucked in the recycle bin. Okay? Lust. A person is reduced to something that meets my needs. When you lust after someone, you are taking from them. This is why God hates lust. It's not, it's not about prudishness. It's not because, you know, God invented sex. It's not like he didn't want anyone to give it a go. Genesis 1, Adam and Eve, first story you ever get, the love story. Let's do an experiment. Let's put two naked vegetarians in a garden and see what happens. God thought of that. People didn't think of that. God thought of that. God ain't no prude. Read Song of Solomon. Whew, you'll need some cold shower after you do. Okay? But lust is not the equivalent of sexual expression. Lust is when you reduce a person to a thing to be used. And when you lust, you are taking, and the world has mixed up lust and love. And so in the world, love is about what I get from someone, what I can have from them, what I can take from them. And like a one-night stand is making love all of a sudden. It's lust. And lust is actually defacing something precious because people are made in God's image. They are a reflection of God. And God feels strongly, therefore, about the way we use each other. See, the difference between lust and love, lust is taking, lust is you exist to meet my needs. Bible defines love as being about sacrifice. Love is about lifting up another person. Love is about giving to another person. Love is about honoring another person. Love is not about what you get, but about what you give. When you love someone, you say, I want to give to you. That's why when we do marriage, marriage ceremonies, I love doing weddings. When we do marriage ceremonies, they put on the ring and they say, all that I am, I give you. All that I have, I give you. It's an incredible moment because it's defining what love is. It's not saying, what have you got? Give it to me. It's saying what I have is yours. Who I am is yours. That's what love is. Lust is just I'm going to use you. I'm going to take something from you. Love is about sacrifice. So this is what Christian dating is. Okay, In the world, dating is just a consumeristic pastime to fill the time. In our faith, dating is seeking to identify a person you could do love with. Seeking to identify a person you could do love with. A person that you could do love as sacrifice, lifting, honouring, giving. Because, you know, the truth is you can't do it with everyone. You can't do it with everybody. 
And too many times what people do is they get themselves into relationships, marriages, romantic relationships, dating situations, and they get themselves into a situation where they're not capable of giving what love requires to that person. And then that person just drives them crazy. Have you ever seen it? I actually see it all the time. The amount of marriage counselling I've done where I thought, these people should have never gotten married. They should have never gotten married. And then they got divorced and I sit there and think, well, it's lamentable that they got divorced, but they shouldn't have ever gotten married. And now once the eggs are scrambled, they're really hard to unscramble. You cannot do it. It takes a lot of grace. And that's why I want you to think about this from a dating perspective, to be very, very cautious and approach dating as seeking to identify the person I could do that type of love with. I mean, that's a brilliant posture to have when you are testing out the potential, if you know what I mean. For a Christian, dating is archaeology. Dating is archaeology. It's looking to discover the person that God has prepared for you, who you can join forces with, that you two could become a power couple, not a power struggle, a power couple in God, and finding the person that you can give to and sacrifice for in an unbreakable relationship. Do you know how many relationship counselling sessions I've done with people where the essence of the problem is their unrealistic expectations? He won't meet my needs. He won't meet my needs. She won't meet my needs. She won't meet my needs. It's like, listen, a relationship works when your full 100% focus is meeting the other person's needs. And it's amazing when you have so much focus on that. It's almost incredible to imagine that the other person has to meet your needs. And yet what's amazing, especially in relationships, is when you start pouring your life into someone else to meet their needs, quite often they reciprocate it. And dating is the process where you test case that hypothesis. Could I pour my life into this person? Would they pour their life back into me? That's a great hypothesis to carry with you into the dating realm. Because if you discover that to each, it's, listen, it's not wrong to come up with the answer no. I, I have a beautiful and amazing wife who's a stellar person. And I was dating someone else when I first met her. And eventually I came to the realisation with this person that, um, well, if I don't marry Danielle, Danielle's going to kill her, so I better just, no, that's not what happened. Um, I came to the realisation, I can't give my life to this person. I can't give my life to this person. They actually drive me nuts. I shouldn't be in this relationship with them. Where, where the relationship's heading, she's wanting to get serious, all this stuff. I can't do that because I cannot give to her what she needs. So I did the kind thing. I broke up with her on Valentine's Day, 1997. And then I found Danielle a couple of years later. But this is, why I'm telling you this is, is, is because, you see... My life was clear and free by the time I met the person that it dawned on me, I actually could give my life to this person. And now I've been giving my life to this person for 21 years. And she's had a lot of therapy given, yes. Um, But see, it works because we were able to identify something in each other. I could give my life to you. We weren't saying, will you give your life to me? It was an identification. I could pour my life out for you. I could sacrifice for you. I could give to you. Now, you should never be in a relationship with someone past the point of knowing, I don't think I can give to you. But plenty of people do because we carry this delusion, I'll change you. I'll change you. I say to people all the time, don't ever marry someone if you don't, uh, can't be happy with them staying exactly the way they are now because the present is the best predictor of the future. That's science. So it's archaeology. Can I give to this person? For a Christian man, dating is an audition process. First, of yourself. I'm auditioning myself. Can I love her as Christ loved the church? That's what men are called to do with the women that they have in their world. We are called to love our women as Christ 
loved the church. It's very unfortunate that this does not get talked about a lot in our culture. Very unfortunate when I rolled up to uni doing social science and sat in my feminist literature class where I was the only one that didn't have purple flat top hair. Um, and the, all of the women hated Christians and once they found out I was one, they hated me. Why? Because you believe in that Bible that's like oppressive to women and misogynistic because women got told to submit to men and then all the terrible things that happened to women in the Bible. And they were un unaware that all of those terrible stories of what happened to women in the Bible are not an affirmation of that horror. It's a critique of that horror. And the essence of Christian masculinity as it comes to the women that we love is love your wife as Christ loved the church. Jesus is the pinup boy for what it means to be a romantically involved Christian man. That's the acid test that I talk to every male at every wedding that I do. It's the acid test I hold myself to. I'm supposed to love this woman like Jesus loved the church. Well, what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus made the first move. Jesus, when I was in the wrong, Jesus was in the right, but Jesus reached out for me. Jesus sacrificed for me. Jesus poured out his blood for me. Jesus poured out his love. Jesus healed me. Jesus restored me. Jesus sought after me. Jesus sacrificed for me. Jesus lifted me. Jesus nourished me. And the way a Christian man is called to approach a relationship with a woman is precious and sacred because it is embodied best in the ministry of Jesus. Just think about that. Isn't that mind-blowing? Now, that ain't easy to do. So don't ever get into a relationship with someone that you're not prepared to do that with. It's incredible for a Christian man. So the first audition for a Christian man is myself. Can I really do that with this woman? The second audition is her. I might be capable of doing it, but can I do it with her? Am I genuinely going to join with this person? It's an audition because the truth is you can't do it with everybody. And there's many, many studies and reasons about why you have chemistry with some types of people and you don't have chemistry with other types of people. For a Christian woman, Christian dating is an audition process. First of yourself, can I respect and admire this man? Could this be someone who, if he loved me the way Jesus loved the church, I could submit to that love. I could honour him. I could respect him. You know how many relationships I've sat with where there's absolutely no honour and respect in the relationship? And in fact, it's crossed over to this other horrible thing called contempt, which makes a relationship destined to fail eventually. There's a marriage therapist called John Gottman. And he can sit a couple down and get them to talk for 30 seconds about anything they want and then predict with 90% accuracy whether they'll be divorced or not in 10 years' time. He studied that for 30 years and his predictions were accurate to 94%. Can you believe that? And they said to him, what's your secret? He said, if they, if they speak to each other with contempt in the relationship in the first 30 seconds, I know that they're destined to fail. It's the number one predictor. Isn't that amazing, hey? So a Christian woman's auditioning herself. Can I love him? Can I submit to him? Can I honour him? Can I respect him? Can I admire him? They're very unique qualities. Can I do life with him? That's your audition as a woman. Can I do this? And then you're auditioning him. Is he the type of guy? Is he actually respectable? Is he actually admirable? Is he actually someone I could do life with? That's the first part of dating. It's an audition. Here's the second part. Real dating is hypothesis testing. Who loves science? I love science. I just think about it all the time. I've got so many geeky friends that I ask weird questions to. In science, hypothesis testing is a thing where you come up with a potential conclusion and then perform a test of a certain standard that will enable you to have garnered enough wisdom to accurately convey the thought, was my hypothesis correct or incorrect? 
And dating is, is a hypothesis. The hypothesis is maybe this relationship can go somewhere. Okay? So I'm hypothesis testing. Therefore, it's stupid to go into a relationship thinking, he asked me for coffee, I'm probably going to be married by next week. In fact, a cup of coffee is not a marriage proposal, girls. Just store that one away. Um, it's hypothesis testing. Can this relationship go somewhere? So initial dates are not marriage proposals and should not be treated as marriage proposals. Young men and women, or older single men and women, you guys should feel very comfortable going for a cup of coffee and, as the Israelites say, spy out the land. You should feel comfortable testing a hypothesis. Is, this, is there potential that this relationship could go somewhere? And there's so much awkwardness in the church. I don't know why. We sort of imagine everyone's going to form relationships by the angel Gabriel appearing and telling them, thus saith the Lord, marry Sharice or something, you know. Um, have an initial date. Have an initial date. And in your early dates, your early dating is hypothesis testing. Here's the hypothesis. Could I make a boyfriend out of you? Could I make a girlfriend out of you? That's your initial hypothesis. And your first few dates is just testing that hypothesis. Is there the potential that this could go somewhere? And that's why you take it nice and easy on your first few dates. You, you, you like take it nice and slow. You make sure the fence around the vineyard is covered, if you know what I'm saying, so that the little foxes aren't sneaking in and eating from the vines. Okay? And I want to give you a couple of um, pieces of advice. Because the first couple of dates are hypothesis testing, ask people out. Have a coffee with someone and test a hypothesis. <laughs> I'm talking to the young adults right now. If you're single and not ensconced already in a relationship, ask someone out. Okay? Now, the expectation generally among girls is that boys will notice them and ask them out. So if you're a single boy in this place, flip and open your eyes, bro. There's a lot of beautiful, gorgeous women in our church, both inner and other qualities, and they are wonderful women. Have a coffee with them and test the hypothesis. Maybe this could go somewhere, okay? And if they say no, don't stalk them. <laughs> no still meant no, no matter what language you see it in. Um, and girls, hypothesis test. If a guy asks you for a coffee, I would expect now, James and Mez are our young adults leaders, James and Mez, I would expect now within our young adults ministry that the formal way of asking someone out in Desert Life Church would be, hey, want to have a hypothesis coffee with me? <laughs> Nothing like a steaming hot cup of hypothesis. Um, and girls, don't be weird about it if a guy asks you out. But I am going to say this too. Girls, a lot of places tell you that, you know, you're not supposed to ask a bloke out and that the Bible, you know, that, that God brought Eve to Adam and so, you know, Eve is supposed to be brought, therefore Adam's supposed to be the initiator and you're... I, I don't believe that at all. I reckon you should feel free if somebody sparks your interest to say, hey, want to have a cup of hypothesis with me? <laughs> but only make it a cup. Um, so go for it. Here's a couple of other uh, tips. Uh, other than... Ask someone out, guys, all right? Just, like, get, don't sit on your hands. Um, here's the second thing. Uh, notice potential. Notice potential. If you're not someone who can graciously make the choice to make the lifestyle choice of singleness, as we talked about previously, then notice potential. Because people say to me all the time, oh, there's no guys, and I'm thinking, I know, I know 10. Oh, guys say, oh, there's no girls, I know 10, okay? And I am not going to become a dating agency. <laughs> but I'm happy to take resumes. Um, so just don't make it weird. Just relax and realise that, you know, you, you're not buying a pram just because a bloke asked you out for coffee. You know what I'm saying? Ho hopefully. Hopefully you're not. Please don't. Um, it shouldn't be weird in our culture. Okay? We are, do not live in a culture of arranged marriages, unfortunately, very sadly for me with three daughters. We don't. So have a coffee. Notice potential and hypothesis test your little hearts out. But remember, 
It's only a hypothesis. Here's a couple of good ones. Make church part of it. Go to be involved in things at church. Like coming on church on a Sunday night where a lot of young people come, that's great. When the young adults do activities, that's great. You know, uh, serve together, join teams, volunteer together. Go on adventures of, mission, of the mission of God together. Those are brilliant ways to hypothesis test because you can like watch each other without anyone knowing that you're watching, which is far less weird than you peeking through their curtains, by the way. Okay, so after a couple of dates, you're then monitoring progress. Okay, I'm starting to lean towards a confirmation of the hypothesis that maybe you are boyfriend material, maybe you are girlfriend material. Then what do I do? I monitor progress. Now that I've said you might be able to be boyfriend or girlfriend material, we maybe should escalate the relationship just a little bit. It's instead of a, a high cup of hypothesis, maybe a bowl, and um, monitor progress. Could I have a long-term relationship with this person? Okay, monitor. And look for confirmation. Look for confirmation in the way you can discuss things. Look for confirmation in the way you can truly be yourself instead of put on an act. Look for confirmation in the way they can honour you and respect you even if you have firm boundaries. Here's another tip. Define the relationship. Don't mess with each other's heads, that's what I'm saying. Don't mess with each other's heads. Define the relationship. Look, you know, I think you're kind of interesting and I just want a cup of hypothesis with you. But it's only a cup of hypothesis right now. Define the relationship. Want to have a coffee? I'm not asking for your hand in marriage. Want to have a coffee? I am asking for your hand in marriage. Very important, you know, you want to dress up for your photos if that's the case. <laughs> Define the relationship. But what I, why I'm saying that is don't mess with each other's heads. Don't leave each other in ambiguous settings wondering what does this coffee mean, okay? But then don't be super intense about it either. You know, don't send Elton John to ask them for a coffee on your behalf that pulls up in a semi-trailer with the keyboard playing. Daniel, my brother. It's just weird. Stop it. When it comes to dating, your number one posture should be, be careful, people can get hurt. And this is my sister I'm talking about. This is my brother I'm talking about. They have a father who loves them that sees them as something precious. So I should be careful, people can get hurt. You should take care how much you invest in a relationship because you've got to guard your heart and keep your focus on where you're going in life and you've got to test this hypothesis. So guard your heart. You should be careful how much you invest before you can confirm the hypothesis and that's a huge problem and I'd hate to pick on you girls but really statistically it's more of a problem for girls than guys. You know, I've, I've, I've met girls even in Alice Springs where a guy says, hey, we should do coffee sometime and then she's cutting out bridal photos and sticking them on a mirror or something, you know, and then, then no one wants to have coffee with her. It's weird. So, um, but just be careful how much you invest because also your investment makes your heart vulnerable. That's why I'm saying hypothesis testing because hypothesis testing is only an investment in the confirmation of the hypothesis in the first place. So don't go from, can I get your number to, great, do you like ivory or bone paper for our wedding invites? It's just weird, okay? I'm trying to save you pain. So be careful how much you invest. Here's the second thing to be careful of. Be careful how much you take because you might be hypothesis testing with somebody and you don't realise that you might be further down the chain than what they are and you're taking from them and you're taking from them and you're taking from them. But if you come up to the point where you say, actually, I don't think this is going to work, you're going to break someone's heart. And you're going to break their heart because you didn't listen to me because instead of hypothesis testing, you rushed into something and both invested too much. And now when you leave that relationship, you feel fine, but you've taken something from them. Don't take, don't take. I'm not getting too grumpy here, am I? Are you all right? I'm nearly done. I'm nearly done. The purpose of dating is courtship, okay? Dating is not courtship. The purpose of dating is to lead to courtship. If I 
test the hypothesis you could really be something, to, we could be something together, then what I do is I begin courtship, which is the next hypothesis. Courtship begins a new hypothesis, which is where we could get married. So the first gateway is you could be boyfriend or girlfriend. The second gateway is we should court. The third gateway is maybe we should get married. And these are testable hypotheses that you don't rush into anything. Don't rush into anything. Consider these gateways wisely. And you'll think, to some of you, this will be like, this seems so obvious. Why are you telling us this? Because of the conversations I have week after week with people. That's why I'm telling you. Don't mess with people. The purpose of dating is courtship. The purpose of courtship is marriage. Don't take what from somebody what they should be keeping for somebody else if you don't have those intentions. Don't be the fox that ruins their vineyard. Okay? That's, a, I think, a godly and Jesus-glorifying commitment that every Christian person should have when they approach dating. I'm not saying don't date. I'm saying do it cautiously. And don't take from somebody what really they should be reserving for the person who will confirm the hypothesis to marry them. It does not glorify Jesus for dating to be consumerism. Because people as products is not what God intends. Don't consume people like they are fast fashion. If you ignore my advice on this, then you open yourself to two problems. The first one is you experience overwhelming rejection and pain when you fall for someone and they don't end up wanting what you want out of the relationship. And by the way, when you experience that, your brain processes the intensity of that pain the same way as if I took a sledgehammer and broke your thigh. The intensity of that pain in new uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging scans is the same as the type of pain when you've got a broken thigh bone. The doctors can tell you what that is. Um, and so that's how deeply you can hurt each other. It's horrible. The second thing that you could avoid is the pain you cause, because do you want to be the person who causes another person to have broken thigh bone levels of pain? I think if we follow Jesus, we want to avoid that, don't we? I wonder if you've ever thought about this, that every person you would ever consider dating has been made by someone and loved by someone. They are someone's child and that someone is God and he cares about them deeply. And so therefore, my posture in engaging with someone romantically is always treating them as someone of profound value that God deeply loves. There's a story in the Old Testament about David approaching a woman as a consumer. Her name was Bathsheba. He's at home. He's on his roof. She's bathing like her name says, Bathsheba. And he's spying on her through the window, which is this first terrible thing. The second terrible thing is he decides that she's a commodity to be used. He's a powerful king. She's a woman whose husband is away. She has no power. He has all the social power. So he says to his servants, get her and bring her to me. And she's brought to him and he sleeps with her. And then after he sleeps with her, he sends her away and time goes on. Wham, bam, thank you, man. And he finds out that she is pregnant. She finds out she's pregnant and she sends a message to him. Uh-oh, I'm pregnant. And then David does the next stupid thing, which he goes and calls her husband back from battle, thinking if I get the husband on the source and tell him to visit her, then they'll have a little reunion, they'll have a little makeup party, and then I won't get in trouble for getting her pregnant. See what he's done? He treated her as something to be used. This is a lust account. Well, it's fascinating if you understand the consequences that ravaged through the nation of Israel and David's family because of the pain of David treating a woman like a consumer. But I wonder if you've ever considered it from God's perspective. And I find this so motivating personally for the way I even engage my wife. And I'm married to her. But this, what I'm about to read to you, informs the way I engage with my wife. And it informs the way I engage with my children. And it informs the way I engage with the young women in this church. Because it causes me to view them through a lens that is quite interesting that many people are not aware of. 
So David thinks he got away with it, then eventually has the husband killed and he just marries the woman basically out of a sense of duty and probably because he's still got quite a lot of lust. But she's still just a thing to him. David thinks he's gotten away with it, but a prophet comes to him, the prophet Nathan. And the prophet Nathan knows, I can't just walk up to the king and go, hey, king, everybody knows what you've done. You've done the wrong thing. So instead, he tells him a prophetically inspired tale. And what the tale does is the tale describes and prescribes the problem that is involved in the situation that David had acted in. And here's what he says. The Lord sent Nathan to David. I want you to think about this. And when he came to him, he said, this is what Nathan said to him. O king, there was a man in a certain town, two men. One was rich, the other was poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he bought. Just think about that. Who loves lambs? I'm not talking about eating lamb. I'm talking about like little fluffy white lambs. Yes? You know, like you see them on TV and you're like, oh, I've got kids. And it's like, my kids always love little lambies when they'd see them anywhere. They're just like, you go to the petting zoo and they wouldn't touch the chickens or the koalas or anything. They just wanted the lambs. You know what I'm saying? Because there's something pure about a lamb, isn't it? In fact, it's an image of purity. There's something sweet. There's something cute. There's something adorable. There's something that moves the heart to be like, oh, little lambie, little snowflake. Isn't there? Are you with me? You're giving me nothing here, people. You're giving me nothing. So this is the image. It's not just a a lamb. It's a little you lamb. So the Hebrew language that this is written in is superlative language. So that you don't miss the point, this is a tiny, vulnerable, cute, gorgeous creature. And even three and a half thousand years ago when this text was penned, that even back then, a you lamb would make even old old David and his boys go, Oh, little snowflake, oh, little cutie. So it's a little new lamb. That's the only lamb he had. He bought it. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. So like Snowflake is the family pet. It grew up, it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food. It drank from his cup. It even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Isn't it incredible, hey? The Bible's just got incredible writing. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took that ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and he prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now the Bible doesn't want you to end up in trauma and therapy. So what it's not telling you is that what that means is he took that lamb, he slit its throat, he skinned it, he cut it up and he cooked it all to feed the traveller. Horrible. What lamb? that little cute ewe lamb that you've just bonded with in the first part of the story. This is like his daughter. This lamb eats from his plate. This lamb drinks from his cup. This lamb sleeps in his arms. This lamb is one of his children. This is a family pet. They were never going to eat that lamb. And the the fellow next door doesn't see it as a thing of beauty, doesn't see it as something hand-raised, doesn't see it as an object that is precious to someone, sees it as a thing to be used and takes it and literally consumes it. David burned with anger against the man. He said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you are that man. You are that man. This is, this is what I find amazing about this, right? That when God looks at Bathsheba, God says she is a beautiful little precious lamb. And I raised her as my beautiful little precious daughter. 
She drinks from my cup. She, I hand reared her. She's one of my children. Now, this never occurred to David before that, that when he was on the rooftop perving at Bathsheba, plotting his scheme to have his wicked way with her, that what he was doing was that was God's, that was God's child. She is God's snow, God's you lamb. And what does he do? He consumed her. And the image is literally a consumption one. The traveler comes and the rich guy kills that lamb and eats it. It means nothing to him other than to satisfy a transitory appetite. There's so much profound theology. We're not going to dwell on it because I've got to shut up and let you go home. But there's so much profound theology in the story that imagine, so me as a man, when I, I read that for the first time in detail, maybe 20 years ago, And you know, for the rest of that week, I looked at my wife a different way. I looked at her like how God saw Bathsheba through this. David, did you realize who she was? You saw a thing to be taken. To me, she was a little lamb that I hand reared that was like a daughter to me. She drank from my cup. She slept in my arms. And all week I was looking at my life and and my wife, sorry, and superimposed in my mind was that God sees her as a ewe lamb. And so if I'm in her life, I have now got to be cautious because she's God's. She's not something for me to use. She's not something for me to dine on. When I'm looking at her, I should be looking at her lovingly, not imagining her with mint sauce or gravy on the side. And so if you're a man here, I really want you to embrace that idea that imagine how God sees all the women in this room. If you're a married man, imagine how God sees your wife. If you've got daughters or cousins or nieces, imagine how God sees them. I understand it with my own daughters because I have hand-reared those things. I've hand-reared them. And I would be devastated if someone came and ate them. But God looks at every woman that way. So a Christian man has an incredible responsibility to ensure that when he engages with God's daughters, that he does it in such a way that honours the person that hand-reared them. It's a challenge. Now, girls, you don't get off lightly. We never get a story in Scripture about the way God sees men. So I'm going to give you one. We're God's lions, boys. We're God's lions with brushed manes. All right, and big muscles. Okay? Girls, we're God's lions, so treat us that way, okay? We're hand-reared. I believe the story can be applied to every human that really when God looks at people he sees someone he's hand raised and someone that is precious to him and therefore we are never called to consume each other but to love and honour each other and even if you get someone in your life you are now God's representative to nurture and love them and pour your life into them they're not existing for your pleasure you exist to pour into them that's a great way to think about what a marriage is so in the story David obviously goes oh man I've done the wrong thing you're right I repent But there are consequences to that that flow into David's family and flow into the nation of Israel. And the first thing we should be aware of is that the pain we cause in relationships as consumerism, even when we say sorry to God, it does not expunge that pain. Don't you want to be careful about how much pain you cause? About what type of wrecking ball you unleash in planet Earth? But here's the second thing to be aware of in this story, that God takes it personally. In the story, the prophet says, you are that man, and as, the Lord, as, as surely as the Lord lives, even though you were the king over Israel, you did this, and listen to what God says, I've given you everything, but you did this because you despise me. You despise me. You killed her husband, you took that woman, and you despised me. 
God takes it personally when David consumes that woman and says, yeah, you did sin against her, but you've got a bigger problem now, David, because you sinned against me. I mean, think about that. I don't ever want God looking at me for the way I treat my wife or my daughters and say, Ben, you've despised me in the way that you've treated them. Doesn't it make you pause? Makes you pause if you're married, makes you pause if you're dating. And if you're single, it should make you very cautious about how much you invest and how much you take in a relationship. Because actually, ultimately, God takes the person you might date very seriously. He takes them personally in Scripture. Anyone you could be romantically engaged with, God takes it personally. All right, I'm going to finish. I'm actually only halfway through, so we'll have to do another week on dating, Miz. On, okay, now that you've scared me out of dating, what do I do? We'll talk about that another time. Hey, let me pray, hey. I, I recognize in this place. What if you just bow your heads, maybe close your eyes. In a message like this, I might have got under your skin in all sorts of ways, partially because I'm annoying and then otherwise because maybe that you've got pain uh, from things that have happened to you in relationships. Pain from the disappointment of hurt. Pain because you've invested and have, have, have been hurt. Pain because you've realized, actually, I took and I shouldn't have done that and I regret that. There's all, all sorts of pain that happens in our lives when we start thinking about these things and when I start talking to you about this stuff. It could just make you feel, feel that pain. So one of the things I want to do right now is I want to pray for you if you're experiencing pain because of past relationships. Pain because of past relationship mistakes. Pain because of relationship abuse. Pain because of heartbreak. Pain because of rejection. And I've joked and said a few silly things tonight, but man, we're not making light at all if you're experiencing pain. That is something we take really seriously. That is something God takes seriously. So I pray for you if you're sitting here, my friend, and you've been feeling relationship pain. The pain of rejection or the pain of abuse, the pain of dysfunction, the pain of heartbreak, the pain of that bitter sting of regret. I pray for you. I pray for you. I pray that God's word would be a source of comfort to you tonight. That in the midst of all this, that you would be aware that we come as worshippers of Jesus because God didn't wait till we sorted everything out before we could know healing. He sent Jesus. It's amazing to think about Jesus being lifted up as the model for what a husband could be. Jesus, who was never himself married, but is yet the textbook case example of an appropriate marriage partner. And what's wonderful about that image is whether you're single or whether you're married, whether you're dating, whether you've made lots of mistakes, whether you've made no mistakes, whether you're with someone, fighting with them, sleeping with them, living with them, getting married, whatever, whether you're not talking to them anymore, whether you're divorced, whether you've been hurt, the Bible holds Jesus up before us and says, you know, the only way to understand real love is to see it embodied in someone that would die for you, which is what Jesus did. And he did that so that you would know that you are indeed precious to God. You are hand raised with his providence, hand reared in his goodness. Even if you've had little foxes come into the vineyard of your life, your whole life, even if you've been consumed by things, even if you've been injured, even if you've been fractured, even if you've done that to others, that, that you're a thing of beauty to God that God loves. And the sacrifice of Jesus was to absorb the power and the penalty and the pollution of all sin and death and brokenness and take it to the grave. And on the third day, raise up in resurrection life to live a new life. And now every person is made an offer, not just join Jesus in his death, something better, join Jesus in his life. Would you live a new life now the way Jesus lives resurrection new life now? 
Would you like to see your pain, your sin, your shame, your rejection taken into the tomb, taken onto the cross, buried in the tomb? But could you see a vision of life where the Jesus that comes out of the tomb says, now you, my son, my daughter, my brother, my sister, would you come and walk with me in newness of life? That's the Christian gospel that we say, Jesus, I'm going to draw a line in the sand of my life and say, yes, and I'm going to walk a new future with you. I'm going to live a new life with you. It's so powerful. And as we sit here, let me pray for you. I pray for you, my friend. I pray that your heart would resound with a sacred yes in response to the gospel. I pray that your heart would resound, whether you've said it a thousand times before because you're a Christian or whether you've never done it before, or maybe you've just been a little bit religious and dabbled, but you don't actually have a genuine relationship with God, a person to be known and be known by, a God, a person to love and be loved by. I pray that tonight, just in your heart, wherever you sit, wherever you are, you would just say, God, my answer is yes to living resurrection life with Jesus. And especially if you're hurting, I pray the resurrected Jesus would make his presence known right now in that place of pain to you, my friend. And I pray, like we see so often in our church, that God's Holy Spirit would hover over you and he would be there in his warmth and be there in his goodness and be there in his grace. I pray for you, listen, man or woman, I pray for you that you would have a sense that God would give you this sense, even in this moment, that comes from his word, that you are a thing of beauty. You are something precious to God. You are his lamb. You are his hand-raised child. God loves you. God is for you. I pray if you need healing, just say, hey, God, would you come in and heal that part of my life? God, would you walk on the storm of that part of my life? God, would you move in that part of my life? I pray for people in this room tonight needing wholeness and healing. I pray for you, my friend, that you would just right now sense the nearness of God's grace, that it would begin to just be a warmth that you sense in your soul, that you'd take it away with you tonight, that even as you sleep, you'd feel this inexplicable restoration, this inexplicable love and warmth, and that'll be the presence of God's Holy Spirit going with you because you've been here sitting under God's Word. I pray for those of you who haven't, and maybe you're not sitting here going, hey, I'm hurt or I'm regret or I'm bitter. But maybe you're thinking, hey, I've got my whole future ahead of me when it comes to what I do with relationships. And so I pray for you specifically, my friend. If you're single especially, I pray for you. I pray God would help you guard your heart. I pray you'd guard your heart, guard your mind, guard your thinking, guard your feelings, guard your decisions. I pray that God would give you strength and grace that you could effectively guard your heart, that stuff wouldn't get in and mess with you. I pray you'd be good at that. I pray you'd be a person of focus, that God would help you in his wisdom and grace develop focus so that you could keep your eyes straight ahead and keep your eyes fixed on the path, that you wouldn't switch to the left or the right and get off track, but that you would stay on track in Jesus' name. I pray for you that God's grace would go with you, that you would feel a sense of motivation, a sense of God shaping. Yes, I can live that way. If you're in a relationship, I pray for you, my friend. I pray you would not be a consumer. If you've demonstrated any of those capacities, I pray you'd have the grace to fix it with someone. If you're currently with a partner, I pray that you would embody a posture that is love and not lust, that you would embody a posture that says, let me love you, let me honor you, let me sacrifice for you, let me pour myself out for you. And I pray that you would discover the joy of what it means to die to self and live for Jesus and express it to other humans in Jesus' name. One last group of people I'm gonna pray for. I pray for people who are lonely. 
And sometimes the loneliness of life and the isolation and the broadcast of culture, they make us feel like we are substandard. They make us feel pain. They make us feel like we're cut off. And so then we begin thinking all sorts of things like of, of all the solutions we could create to our loneliness. But I pray, my friend, for you. I pray, first of all, in your loneliness, you would go to God who loves you and who sees you as someone precious and something precious. And I pray you would have the grace to go to God and say, God, I feel lonely. God, I feel empty. God, I feel depressed. God, I feel grieved. Would you help me? Would you feel me? Would you help me find my fullness in you? That's the first prayer I have for you, friend. Here's the second prayer. I pray for you in Jesus' name that you would occupy yourself with the mission of God in this season that you would serve God, that you would serve God's people. When you're lonely, it's a great signal. I need the fullness of community in my life. And so I pray that you would step through whatever the barriers are to serving, to volunteering, to being on mission, to giving to others, to helping others, to lifting them up, to being the most encouraging person in other people's worlds. I pray God would grace you for that because I know if you are that type of person, there's no way you'll be a lonely person. I pray you'd be a giver. I pray you'd be a lover. I pray you'd be a person of light, a blessing to others in Jesus' name. I pray God would put you in community, that God would wed you closer to people in community so that you would have life-giving, positive, healthy, intimate relationships in Jesus' name. Now I want you to all pray with me. God, we pray for our church. We pray you would fill our church with people being healed and being whole and growing and on a journey, making great choices in you. We pray our church would have a culture of life and positivity that is life-giving, that grows people, that they would always leave this place better. Any gathering we have, whether it's on this site or in a home or in a, in a, in a field or up a mountain or whatever we do in this part of the world, Lord, I pray our church would be a place that every time we are gathered, that we leave more whole, more blessed, more encouraged and lifted up than ever before. And for our people who will date and start dating, give them grace, don't let them get hurt, don't let them hurt each other. Let them glorify you in Jesus' name, we pray. And everyone said, amen and amen. You guys have been phenomenal. Thank you. Pastor Meredith, why don't you come and close?